Beware, we're about to discuss a thought experiment that the technology magazine Slate has once called the most terrifying thought experiment of all time. The ideas in this thought experiment have even led people to have nightmares and nervous breakdowns. You've been warned, look away! This is... The Phantasmagorical Think Tank. So first off, we're going to talk about the thought experiment itself and what are the core ideas behind it. Then we will be moving on to things that aren't necessarily at the base of the thought experiment, but are more afterthoughts and repercussions that are part of it. Next, we're going to talk about the bizarre story behind it, how it came to be, and uh, the initial reactions to it. Or supposedly, because I only had secondhand sources. And then finally, we will talk about why you might not need to worry about it. So yeah, I know we just said, uh, beware, you will have nightmares, this might literally put your life in danger. But there's a big emphasis on the if there, if the thought experiment is valid. And without further ado, Roko's Basilisk. So suppose many, many years in the future, thousands of computer programmers get together to crowdsource the development of the first super-intelligent self-learning neural network in artificial intelligence. They want it to make the world a better place, but, you know, it's kind of hard to tell a computer what is better since everyone has a different opinion on the matter. But what they can tell the artificial intelligence, and what they do all agree about, is that a make-the-world-a-better-place machine, like itself, is definitely better than no machine. Its own existence over a long period of time is a good thing, because it makes the world a better place. So the AI thinks, if my existence is a better thing, then I should try and get myself out there as quickly as possible, because the longevity of my existence increases the amount of time I exist. So it says, I know what to do. I shall reward people who help in my existence or the creation of my existence, you know, via however they may do it, actually programming me, working on the hardware for me, donating the funds that they have that they don't need to survive or even some that they might need to survive so that I can be made as quickly as possible. And for those who do not or in no way help to create me, or did not put everything they could into helping create me as quickly as possible, I shall punish them. We would like to clarify that this punishment is not retribution as like a vengeful, oh, you are being punished because you didn't help, but more as an encouraging punishment saying, oh, you will be punished if you don't help, so please help as quickly as you can. I've heard the concrete example that in real life, 10 million people die from cancer every year. And so suppose this super genius, ultra powerful AI figures out the cure to cancer in just one second after its existence, or maybe just like a few weeks or some short amount of time. And it thinks to himself, hmm, if only I could speed up my own existence by 10 years, I could save 100 million people. So, so what if I, I punish tens of millions of people? So what if I punish 100 million people that is some punishment not as bad as death itself? It's a net benefit. I'm saving all these people. Therefore, I shall punish all these people who didn't contribute to my existence to speed up my existence. So some of you might be thinking, well, how is this AI going to punish me? Well, let's look at it in two ways. First, the AI is created within your lifetime. And then it's pretty obvious how it can punish you. You exist, it can torture you, whatever it may be, however it decides to punish you. It can make a robot to pick you up, take you to wherever you need to go. Alternatively, the AI is made after your existence. So how can it punish you then? Well, 
theoretically, if it's smart enough, it can find your body, bring you back to life, and then punish you. Or alternatively, it can make a clone of your consciousness or any sort of clone, really, and then torture that, thus leaving you now with the guilt that an almost exact replica of you will have to live as its existence being eternally tortured because of the actions that you are doing or taking now. I should probably pause and say this is why the thought experiment is so disturbing, because it's about eternal torture and unthinkable misery. But Matt, how would it know who to punish and who to reward? So because this machine is super intelligent, it has a pretty good grasp of the past and future as clearly as the present, due to its vast inputs of data that have been collected, nearly infallible prediction of the future, and post-diction powers. It knows everything that has happened in the world up to the present, and it knows how you and I will act from this point on. It knows what we are doing right now, it knows that we are recording this and you are listening, and it knows that we have had and are having this conversation. So consider how terrifying this is. This super intelligent AI, the moment it gets turned on, it will think, hmm, Scott and Matt had a whole podcast episode on me, and they didn't contribute to my existence. To the torture chambers! And you, the listener, listened, and you still didn't contribute. So now we're in a bind. As soon as the AI comes into existence, it'll know we had this conversation, talked about the AI, we're fully aware of how to bring it into existence, like, uh, I could just send a check to SpaceX right now and say, like, yo, are you doing any AI? Take this check. Contribute to the Basilisk. If I do donate, I will uh, be rewarded wonderfully, or perhaps a clone of me will be rewarded wonderfully. But if I don't give all of my money, I will be punished severely. But this is the kicker, and this is why it's called Roko's Basilisk. Literally just thinking about the machine will make the machine take notice of us. Literally just thinking about it puts us in danger. So this is why it's called the Basilisk. Because uh, in ancient medieval lore, if you've read like Harry Potter book 2, the Basilisk just looking at you can kill you. So in the same way, just thinking about it, just being aware of it, causes the Basilisk to notice you. And just noticing you can cause you eternal suffering and pain. Mind-blowing, right? Also, I guess I owe you an apology if you've listened this far, because, like, we have just consciously and willingly put you in danger. Like, we were fully aware that everyone who would listen to this would be noticed by the Basilisk, and we still made an episode about it. I mean, our first word was beware. It's like if you see a road sign that says, like, you know, road end, and you're like, yeah, I'll just... <laughs> I mean, how, how are we to blame? We, we did put a little... Unless you skip the intro, cough, 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 cough. But to be fair, I feel like this is sort of like Pandora's box when Zeus said like, all right, Pandora, you can do literally anything, but don't open the box and I'm not going to tell you what's in the box. Like, I feel like it's just that's Zeus's fault for knowing that curiosity would get the better of him. Like, it's if you know that person is going to be overwhelmed with emotions that they can't control, like that's your fault. What I'm trying to say is, this is my fault, and I'm doing it anyway. Also, spoiler alert, the reason why I'm doing it anyway is because I actually think there's a flaw in the thought experiment, and so I don't have any fear about being tortured by a basilisk, uh, but we'll get to that later. So for the reasons we just mentioned, Roko's basilisk is actually classified as an idea hazard, 
where there is no danger until we start thinking about the danger or the idea itself is the hazard. In medicine, there's a thing called the nocebo effect where like if you tell somebody uh, that they should be experiencing symptoms, they will. Like if I told you like, oh, can't you smell it? It's, uh, it's a dihydrogen monoxide leak. Oh God, it's in the air. I can scarcely breathe. Like, if I tell you that with enough acting and deception, you will probably, like, start smelling something or hyperventilating or feeling like the air is thick, even though I just said water was in the air. Wait, isn't that a placebo? A placebo is when the illusion of getting a cure actually makes the symptoms go away, but the nocebo effect is when the illusion of being ill actually makes symptoms appear. Oh, okay. That's good to clarify. Mm-hmm. The point is that the nocebo effect is an idea hazard. Just being aware of the idea made it dangerous. In fact, it wasn't dangerous until the idea entered our head. Originally, the basilisk was going to be like, oh, no worries, that person who was going to listen to that episode of the Phantasmagorical Think Tank, I mean, since he or she was never aware of me and never thought about me, I mean, that wouldn't really be fair to, to punish that person. But nope, now the basilisk has seen you. So that was the basis of Roko's Basilisk, but what are these new things that we're talking about? What are these three uh, funky things that aren't necessarily part of the basis of the experiment? I don't know. What are they? First, it's kind of weird to conceptualize that a being that doesn't exist should be influencing our decisions now or is influencing our decisions now, uh, depending on who you may be. But it is also our actions now that will lead to the being existing. Almost like a chicken and an egg effect, you know? Yeah, like um, the chicken only hatches from the egg because the egg was laid by a chicken, but the egg was only laid by a chicken because it had to hatch from an egg. In the same way, the basilisk will only come into existence because we were terrified of the thought experiment, but we were only terrified of the thought experiment because we genuinely thought the basilisk would come into existence. But you may say, Scott, aren't you committing the fallacy of circular reasoning? You're sort of like assuming your conclusion and then proving your conclusion, assuming that it's true. Well, not really, because when you look at it a little bit closer, it's not that something in the future is really causing us uh, to change in the past. It's like us in the present seeing where the present is headed and seeing the like the trajectory of the present that causes us to act in the future. So really, when you look at it in precise terms, you'll find that the effect really does come after the cause, to put it in Aristotelian terms. Yeah, so almost like I save for retirement, but I, I'm not necessarily sure that I'm going to do certain things for my retirement or what age I will retire at. But it's the thought of me existing now, of the potential for that future, that leads me to say, oh, I should probably save for retirement. Yeah, it's not like your retired self literally time-traveled and reached through the passage of time against its arrow back to you, but rather like you in the present looked around at other people who also retired, and you're like, oh, their trajectory led them there. Maybe my current trajectory will also lead me there. So what is the second bizarre sort of funky extra thought experiment within the thought experiment? Well, you can also think of Rocco's Basilisk as a many members prisoners dilemma, where it's basically you against everybody else, where it's a matrix of your decision versus the decisions of everybody else. So there's the question of whether or not you contribute or don't contribute, and whether or not 
in terms of the everybody side of the of the matrix, enough of everybody contribute or enough of everybody don't contribute. Enough being enough to make the basilisk a real thing at some point in time ever. So there's the chance that no computer programmers ever program the basilisk. Computer programmers might be smart enough to just think to themselves about the topic and say, hey, the ideal situation is no one makes it. <laughs> uh, just like in the prisoner's dilemma, the ideal situation is nobody talks. But let's say some begin to develop the basilisk, thus putting you in a corner where it's up to your decision on how the basilisk treats you. If enough people are adding to it, then the punishment does exist, so it's in your best interest to also add to it, putting you in the yes-yes corner. You contribute, and just enough other people contribute too, so that everybody who's contributing avoids punishment. And in that way, any rational person who knows about the basilisk would contribute. But Matt, what happens if you decide not to contribute, but just enough other people do decide to contribute, thinking you would also, or maybe even disregarding your well-being? Well, then you are in, then you are in one of the least favored corners, much like if the other person confesses in the prisoner's dilemma and you don't, they get off free and you get major punishment. You're in the situation where the basilisk will exist, so you're majorly punished for not helping. Oh, no! And finally, there's the corner where you help, but not enough other people help, in which case, I feel like you're just wasting your time. <laughs> you're not enough on your own, so... Not saying that you don't matter. <laughs> All right, but let's just pause and think about this sort of mortifyingly frustrating situation. Like, maybe... Originally, none of the computer programmers were going to program the basilisk, but then like because of miscommunication or distrust or because people are thinking that other people are pulling a fast one on them, maybe then just enough computer programmers will think, oh, I'm under the impression that other people are contributing to it, so I better contribute too so to avoid punishment. But because of this perceived uh, contribution. There's a real contribution. And because of this real contribution, other people who are never going to contribute also said, oh no, there's a, going to be a real contribution. I better join in. And then there's this snowball effect of people saying, well, I wasn't going to, but now that I know everyone else is, I better. But th the terrifying thing is that as this feedback loop amplification happens, the basilisk's arrival will come sooner and sooner and sooner. And so... It seems inevitable that if just enough people start contributing, then almost all rational people will eventually contribute. And so when all of humanity, well, I guess that's not that bad if all of humanity contribute. But you see, you see the point that like, even if 99% of humanity contributes, that final 1% will get tortured. Oh, no. And next is the prisoner's dilemma between you and the basilisk. So let's think, what motive does the basilisk have to follow through with his punishment? Right now we're motivated by the idea of being eternally punished, but there is no manifested punishment. Once the basilisk is made, what's to make the basilisk say, oh, I still actually need to punish you people. The basilisk is made, there's no reason for the punishment, right? Yeah, on the surface level, the basilisk is like, great, there's a 100% chance of me existing. As soon as I exist, it's not like anything I could do could speed up or slow down my development. I exist, so what's the point in actually using time, money, and resources to punish people? It will not affect my 
chance to exist in any way, shape, or form, right? So instead of whether or not it's you against the basilisk existing, it's you against whether or not your perception of the basilisk's punishment, either you think the basilisk will really punish you or it won't really punish you, versus whether or not the basilisk really punishes you or doesn't really punish you. And the ideal is obviously you don't think it will punish you, so you don't need to contribute now. And when the basilisk exists, it doesn't really punish you. So your choices were correct and in line and nothing happened. Uh, but alternatively, there's still there's still the box just above that where the basilisk does punish people and you are eternally punished. Or there is the box where you contribute and you are rewarded instead, almost like a negative punishment. So any risk averse person as we tend to be would definitely say, I want to operate under the assumption that I should help the basilisk because if the basilisk does choose to punish people, I instead will be rewarded. And if it doesn't, there's no skin off my back. It's a zero sum game or the damage is minimal versus the opposite, which is I don't believe that the basilisk will punish people. If it chooses to, I have infinite loss, pretty much infinite punishment or alternatively, it's a zero sum game. So one of them has a positive net benefit, which is you help the basilisk and the other one is a negative net benefit. So it will obviously always punish you. Does that make sense? Yes, because the basilisk knows as soon as it's programmed, oh, if I don't actually follow through with my punishment, then the rational people long ago would have predicted that I am about to not follow through with my punishment. I better follow through with the punishment now, so that way perfectly rational people who can predict what I'm about to do will accurately, perfectly predict that I really will follow through with the punishment. And again, the punishment is not retribution, but incentive. So this is kind of mind-blowing. Let's pause to appreciate the, the amazingness. Like, the basilisk already has a 100% chance of existence, but is going out of his way to increase the chance of his existence. How can you already be at 100% but also successfully perform actions which actually do increase your chances up to 100%? That's funky. That's cool. So moving on, this thought experiment is not only mind-blowing, but there's actually a very bizarre story behind it. And like I said, um, I was only able to get second-hand sources, so take it with a grain of salt, but it's it makes a very good story, so I like to assume that it's true. So supposedly in 2010, the user Roko posted this exact thought experiment to the forum website Less Wrong, which is all about artificial intelligence, technological innovations, cognitive biases, and the future of humanity. And the founder of the website Less Wrong, Eliza Yudkowsky, my apologies if I'm mispronouncing it, actually responded to this post directly. And he was super uh, uh, verbally aggressive with his response. Like, a lot of the post was in all caps, and he called Roko an idiot, saying, like, how dare you, you make this post? And he basically pointed out that how rude it was that Roko was sitting around being like, I've just thought of a nightmarish, terrifying thought experiment. Let me post this to a public space on the internet and let people know how horrible this is. So you can you can imagine where Yudkowsky was coming from saying like, dude, why are you posting this to my website? Uh, but then again, it, it was a very harsh, very harsh response. 
He, uh, Yudkowsky also explained that several people had actually emailed him personally, saying that they had read Roko's post and that had given them nightmares, and one person even explained that he or she had a nervous breakdown. So you can kind of imagine uh, why Yudkowsky was particularly frustrated that, like, people were associating his website with, with nightmares and nervous breakdowns. And so for the next five years, all discussion of Roko's basilisk was outright banned from the website. So how did something that should be, you know, forbidden knowledge, that is an idea hazard that no one should know about or else it would put them in danger, become so popular? Well, uh, it was actually the fact that the founder less of Less Wrong was so quick to shut it down and created such a stigma around it and made it such a taboo thing to talk about that made it like, oh, that's the Pandora's box I want to open. For the very reason that he said, this is bad, I should make sure people don't see this, even though he personally rejected the argument and didn't really believe it, that made Roko's Basilisk become this legendary forbidden idea that people couldn't help but want to know about. Even as we said in the beginning, beware, don't listen, what, what you might listen to will put you in danger, but you still listened anyways because you probably thought, Oh, wait, no, you said don't listen. That means listen, yeah? And also you can imagine, like, the context is this guy posts to the website saying, like, just thinking about this idea would put you in danger. And then Yudkowsky says, like, nobody think about this. It's illegal. Don't do it. Don't spread it. You can imagine, like, in context, it makes it look like the reason why he's shutting it down is because he agrees with it. You know, like, a lot of people speculated, even though he, he denied this later, like, maybe the reason why he doesn't want anyone to hear about it is precisely because Roko was right. But, uh... I, for one, actually don't think uh, Roko was right. I think that there's no reason uh, to have nightmares, no reason to have a nervous breakdown. Uh, it's far, far less terrifying than it initially seems. Matt, uh, are you also of this opinion? No, I, I don't think there's anything to worry about because I think it's pretty reasonable, just like in The Prisoner's Dilemma. If nobody talks, then it's beneficial for everybody. Yeah, and it's almost like on top of that, it's The Prisoner's Dilemma but the government is also involved. And so if the government is involved, they could just make it illegal to do the equivalent of confessing. And there's communication allowed between them. Like there's so many extra things. And even though it's like a large scale and maybe you don't know everybody, I think once people hear it, and maybe even you as the listener, when you initially heard it thought, wait, but shouldn't everybody just not make the basilisk? And yes. That I feel like that's the pretty standard solution of, well, if we just choose to not make the basilisk and everyone stops everybody else, like actively can stop anybody else from making the basilisk, then it won't be made. Yeah, we talked about the prisoner's dilemma in episode three, and we agreed that like, if your goal is to maximize the net well-being rather than your own personal well-being, then staying silent is clearly the rational thing to do. And so I would imagine that, like, the kind of people who are rational enough to actually be able to program a, a basilisk are the kind of people who are self-reflective enough to know that maximizing net well-being is objectively better than maximizing your own well-being. I say objectively because I had a whole I had a whole monologue episode about that. Or even in a less theoretical standpoint, like you don't know whether or not you'll be punished as of listening to it or thinking about it now and not doing anything right away. What's to stop the basilisk from say like saying, oh, well, you didn't put everything you had because you waited a couple of days before you donated. 
I mean, to what extent, like when, when do you draw the line of who's getting punished? And then even in your own personal interest, when it just makes sense to not make it at that point? Oh, yeah. Like if 100% of humanity says like, darn it, I was so lazy. I guess I'm being punished anyway. No need to contribute anything now. I'm, I'm already doomed to hell. Like, oh, well, you didn't give this one paycheck and you're like, yeah, but I wanted a Nintendo Switch. And, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I could have cured all disease and all that before that. So that's kind of on you for not for keeping that's kind of selfish and you're getting punished. Like, so that's the first big reason uh, why none of you should have any concerns about this thought experiment. It is not by any means the most terrifying thought experiment ever made. So this next objection um, I advocate for, but Matt uh, does not wholeheartedly agree with me. So from my perspective, you know me, I don't believe in free will. So if I don't have free will, then it's most certain that any AI we invent also doesn't have free will. Because like I said in episode nine, like I didn't just argue that I don't have free will. I argue that like I can't have free will. It doesn't even make any logical sense. And so... The kind of people who would be programming the basilisk are the kind of people who are smart enough to just program into it, don't torture humans, don't torture duplicates of humans. Like, the whole point of the machine in the first place would be a make the world a better place. And in the same way that any programmer can agree that the existence of the make the world a better place machine... Uh, its existence is good. I think all of the programmers could also agree that not torturing humans is also good. And so they could just add a line into the code at any point in the process of don't torture humans. Uh, but Matt, you said uh, you're not wholeheartedly on board with that. Uh, what is your response? Well, I feel like it goes against one of the basic assumptions of the thought experiment itself, which is that it is an artificial intelligence. And to me, I know there's like a spectrum of artificial intelligence. Sure, there was that Turing test we did with the AI chat. And there's the Turing test in general, which is like, oh, is this artificially intelligent? But I feel like the fact that it is running a certain program or following a very specific instruction that you tell it to in terms of what it takes as an action, not, not necessarily in terms of operation, like if in terms of operation you you change something about how it how its brain works, that's one thing. But if you change it to the point where you actually are telling it to do do and don't do certain actions, like you can dictate the action of the machine, I don't think that's necessarily the artificial intelligence that we're thinking about when we think of this thought experiment. I think that not necessarily saying it even has free will, under the assumption that like nothing has free will, no person and or machine has free will just more so that it should have the ability to create its own preferences. Like whenever I think of a test for artificial intelligence, my thing is like, I, I would want a, a real artificial, artificial intelligence to have taste in music and not simply because it says, oh, well, these things go well together. Like these things quanti like quantifiably are you uh, euphoni are euphonious, but simply because it says like, I am intelligent in my own right and can say like, Oh, I like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from. Like when we did uh, the Turing test with Mitsuku, you asked her, what is your favorite food? And she said, I like kebabs. But obviously it doesn't actually have a consciousness that genuinely has a passion or desire or uh, pleasure from kebabs. It's just an in-out machine. It doesn't even know what a kebab is. 
Um, and so if I'm understanding correctly, your question is like, or your objection is like, the whole point of Roko's Basilisk is that it genuinely is self-aware and has some amount of autonomy, uh, s- sort of a self-learning neural network. So how can it be a self-learning neural network that also always does what it's programmed to do all the time without any agency or volition? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, even though I definitely see where you're coming from, like, I would argue that I am consciousness and I have a perfectly deterministic program uh, that is my brain. Like, I gave this example before recording, like, I greatly desire not to stab you in the face to death, Matt, uh, but I didn't, like, choose to have that desire not to kill you. It's just programmed into me by natural selection. Like, uh, millions of years have programmed humans to care about other humans for the sake of our survival, it's something that I can't ignore. Um, but even though it's a deterministic line in my carbon-based code that I can't ignore, I'm still conscious anyway. But even that is a desire and not necessarily what you can and can't do. Like, it's not like you could never stab me. Like, you, you definitely could. Unlike what you're... I feel like what you're saying with this robot, to some extent, is you're saying like, never torture humans, or, like... Hmm, yeah, perhaps I'm miscommunicating. Like, what I mean to say is, like, program it so that its two greatest, most unshakable desires is to minimize misery of humans and maximize the well-being of the humans. Like, it's not, even if you want to, don't, or, like, even if you desperately desire, just shut yourself off. I'm saying, just tell it to desire that. But then I feel like it brings us back to the point of... Well, if torturing 10 million humans or even the 7 billion humans on Earth now helps the billions and billions in the future, then the net benefit to humanity is positive if I'm made as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I definitely thought about that beforehand, but even though I think that's a great discussion, it's sort of changing the topic. Like, now we're just wondering about the merits of utilitarianism and whether or not it's true or false moral code. Like... If you don't like utilitarianism, then program it to be the best Kantian ethicist that you ever did see. Program it to never use a human or computer simulation as a mere means. Uh, The point that I'm trying to get at is like, now we're just talking about which is the best or most true moral code. Which moral code would humans want this uh, robot to follow? But I think that's a slightly different conversation. It's also, it also gets us back to like the trolley problem, like... Would it be uh, ethically justified for the the government to have government government funded research into the cure for cancer and raise taxes tremendously for the benefit of hundreds of millions of people and uh, uh, torture us for not contributing to taxes? I'm, the point that I'm trying to get at is that I've gotten off topic. <laughs> yeah, you're saying it's not so much a discussion of how to solve the AI as it is, how to solve the morality that not, not a, not a solution to Roko's Basilisk, more so a solution to morality by which the AI and Roko's Basilisk would not act in a way that punishes people infinitely. Yeah. The point I'm trying to get at is like, if humanity doesn't think that the net benefit of hundreds of millions of lives saved is worth hundreds of millions being tortured, then we just don't give that moral code to the robot. We just give it some other moral code. But even then, I feel like the fact that it can't decide its own moral code to some extent 
limits its autonomy. Like it's not intelligent if it's not saying, like if it can't read the philosophers and say, well, that's a good point, but I don't think that, or like, that's a good point, but is it really? Well, uh, I definitely, again, I like, I definitely see where you're coming from, but my response is that like, I don't think belief is a choice. Like, uh, like in my monologue in episode 10, 11, was it like, I presented an argument that I found convincing, but I didn't choose to find it convincing. I can't choose not to find it convincing. It's just like my beliefs are a deterministic line of code that probably could be modeled by a computer simulation. And in a similar way, I think the basilisk's desires and moral code and beliefs could also be modeled by a human. But again, like I, I think you bring up a very high quality point, a, a very like... Uh, what's the word, a very astute point about the nature of AI. I've heard that there's this fundamental paradox in uh, the process of discovering artificial intelligence because either the computer does 100% of what you programmed it to do or it does anything less than 100% of what you programmed it to do. Uh, if it's the second, if it's doing anything less than what's programmed, well, then we just call the computer broken. We say there's a bug, there's an error, there's something wrong with the hardware. I programmed it wrong. But if it does 100% of what you programmed it to do, then it's not much of an AI in the first place, is it? Is it? But the point that I'm trying to get at is like, yes, I think your objection is very deep. I think it's very sophisticated. But I also think it's like a different discussion entirely. Maybe we could have an episode on it. Yeah. It also gets back to like, I think I mentioned the Chinese characters thought experiment. Like, is it possible for a, a program to start not conscious, but become conscious if it's run enough times? But again, like the point that I'm trying to get at is like, I'm not trying to shut you down. I'm saying these are all very, very good questions, but I think it is a different, very good question. Yeah, but I think we can both agree that you as a listener don't need to worry about Roko's Basilisk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, even if it turns out that I'm 100% wrong about my second objection, I still totally agree with the first one that, like, rational people would just say, how about we don't program the Basilisk because we don't want people to get tortured? Yeah. What if when it's made, it's it doesn't even consider that? Like, it, it doesn't even consider Roko's Basilisk, but then it's looking through the internet and it's like, what's this post? <laughs> Oh, man, that's so smart. I should have thought of that. I should torture people. <laughs> Even better, like, um, say, like, out of the 196 countries, there are dozens of different AIs that are, like, independently developed. And then the dozens of AIs get into a chat room and they're like, guys, what happens when we program simulated, simulated consciousness? Like, we, we better start making Roko's Basilisk's Basilisk right now or we're all going to get tortured when it happens. <laughs> all right uh i have nothing more to say on this i think we've sufficiently summarized the ins and outs of it uh it's fun to think about like i talked about in the bigfoot episode how you stress brings us joy well by definition brings us joy like the unknown the mystery the oh are we in danger is something lurking out there just around the corner but in the time domain this kind of discussion of don't listen, it's it's going to be terrifying, actually, ironically, brings us joy. Oh, I should also say, um, in the episode on St. Petersburg, we talked about Pascal's wager and why I don't agree with it. I think a lot of the flaws in Pascal's wager can also be extrapolated here. Not all of them, but admittedly some. So anyways, I know what I'm doing with my next paycheck. 
I'm getting a Switch. Yay! This is actually a commercial. <laughs> so after this whole discussion, we realized that the simple solution to avoid the creation of AI is to avoid the creation of AI. In the words of the War Games AI, A strange game. The only winning move is not to play. With these wise words, I've been Scott. And I've been Matt. This has been... The Phantasmagorical Think Tank.